0: We are drawn to stories of triumph in the Bible. It is easy to focus only on them to pump us up. We avoid the stories of sadness, loss, and despair. How can they lift us up?
1: Good morning, everybody. I'm not getting old yet, but uh, the nature of this topic, I just feel a little like um, I just needed to sit and rest and and try to be a little bit more with you on the subject of lament. So um, that's why I'm seated, and uh, I trust that uh, doesn't get in the way of the communication. Lament is a word that we don't talk about much. In society, we talk about being sad, but we don't talk about lament. Lament is the ongoing role of grief in our lives. And uh, we live in a society, of course, where no one ever has a bad Facebook page, do they? You know, everybody's living the perfect life so everybody can see and be envious of the life that you lead. Uh, but the reality is that grief is a big part of our lives. And so, what we're going to do today is we're going to begin a series, just four weeks looking at the subject of lament and how grief and challenge uh, become opportunities for God to invest himself in our lives in new and fresh ways. So let me pray, and then we'll begin this talk. Father, I want to thank you that we can open up Scripture and find stories that reflect the completeness of our life experience, the fullness of our life experience, from the joy of what we've just seen today with baptism through to the deepest, darkest grief which plums the imagination of despair. And yet, Lord, your word reflects these experiences for us in an attempt to say this is normal life, even though it's hard. And so, God, we pray that we open up our eyes of understanding today, that our hearts be, be moved by what your word says. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, the Bible's full of stories, isn't it? And stories are fantastic because they tell us about God's outworking himself in people's lives around the centuries that have gone by. But it also means that it's a book full of feelings because with every story comes an associated feeling, doesn't it? When you read about David slaying Goliath, you feel victorious and you see the little guy overcoming the big guy. Uh, When you hear stories of, of death, of course, that's sad and we experience that grief in that story. And so it goes on. And that's why stories um, make such an impact in our lives. But what we're going to do today is we're going to look at how it is that um, the Scriptures gave us an opportunity to see ourselves like looking in a mirror. And when we look at the subject of joy and we look at happiness and we look at resurrection and we look at eternity, we find ourselves sort of leaping into the Scriptures going, oh, this is a great experience. I, I can see how it's going to give me hope in a time of... Uh, our future, trouble maybe. Uh, But when we look at lament, when we look at sadness, we often are reading scripture and we sort of go past those verses because we're not really sure what to do with them. Especially being Kiwis, especially those brought up of good British stock, where it's all stiff upper lip and tally ho by George, you know, uh, and nothing gets us down. The fascinating thing about being a New Zealander is that uh, within the Māori culture, they have a fantastic way of expressing their grief. If you've ever been on a marae, gone to a tangi, uh, it is an event. It is an emotional event. It takes three days generally, but it's a time there of real grieving, real honesty, real openness, and a real sense in which you can let your guard down and talk about your feelings towards the person who's gone and deceased, that is. And so, we have this mixture within New Zealand, and I, and I think we're getting better at learning how to express ourselves. I, I, I remember when I was back at secondary school, uh, in fourth form, it's year 10 French class, where I should have been learning all my French verbs and nouns, I remember sitting next to a guy, Harry Wallace, Harry was a very keen football player, and I used to have Harry on all the time, i say, Harry... Why do all the football players kiss and cuddle each other every time they get a goal? Come on, Harry. You know what sort of what sort of uh, uh, example of, of manhood is that? You know, being a rugby player, of course, you know, we give them a hard time. Well, things have shifted, haven't they? Have you noticed how the All Blacks all jump all over each other and hug and cuddle? And yeah, it shouldn't be allowed, should it? Hey? I like things the way they were when you could just give football players a hard time. But clearly something's shifting in New Zealand, clearly something's shifting within our world, because we are far more out there with our emotions than we've ever been, and that's got to be a healthy thing. You know, this idea that men sort of keep this tough exterior um, and and don't display any emotions, I think, is is part of the past, not the future, I hope. You know, men can hold on to all the emotions and bottle them all up, and for the privilege, they die 10 years earlier on average than women. True. True and I think this is part of it. What we're going to look at today is how it is that um, Scripture gives us the ability to cry out to God for help. But one of the biggest things that we've got to overcome is this image that we carry of whom God is. You see, I'm not going to go running towards a God and express my grief and my loss and my pain and my suffering and my anxiety and my tensions and my questions if I think that God is just this big guy standing up there who sort of zaps us every time he wants to. If my image of God is somebody who's distant, who's aloof, who just challenges, threatens me, and demands more of me, then my grief won't have anywhere to express itself because that'll be seen as weakness, and in front of an authoritative God, uh, weakness is not allowed. Can you get my, get my drift here? So the image that we have of God is very, very important for us. And that's why I love verses that talk to us in the New Testament about When Jesus said, uh, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's one of the beautiful, beautiful images that we have of whom God is because Jesus came and he expressed compassion for the people who are broken, the outsiders, he embraced them. And uh, people who were really at wit's end, he would get into their lives and draw them closer. And Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so we see the nature of God in the character of Jesus. So our image of God has to be positioned right before we can really take hold of what it is that God offers us in respect to our sadness and our grief. Of course, we'd like to live in a world where nothing sad ever happens, but the sad reality of that is that lament is part of our lives. And lament is, by definition, a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. A passionate expression of grief or sorrow. And uh, there are times in our lives when we are we are really sad, really, really hurting. Maybe there's been a busted relationship. Maybe we've got sickness in our lives. Uh, maybe death has encroached our family circle or our friendship circle. And we've got these emotions, and we're not really sure what to do with them. The Bible gives us a really good way of expressing grief, and we'll come to that in a moment. But the first thing that we've got to overcome is this False view of God. You see, the Bible tells us that we are living in a broken world. When something is broken, that means that it can't be fixed. When something is broken, it means that one plus one doesn't always equal two. It means that all the equations of life aren't necessarily going to be nicely measured and nicely worked out just to make sense for you. When it's broken, it doesn't make sense. And so when we are struck with a tragedy, often this becomes the time that reveals to us exactly what our faith is built upon. What is our faith invested in? And for many people, what I come across in pastoral situations is that people are invested not in God, they don't have faith in God, but they have this underlying faith in fairness. Fairness. I've been a great parent. How come my child is unwell? That's not fair. I've been kind to others. Why aren't people kind to me? That's not fair. I've lived a healthy life, and now I'm struck down with cancer. That's not fair. Well, fairness has got nothing to do with Christianity. Fairness is actually an Eastern religious formula. For example, if I'm kind to you, you're kind back. That is karma. If I'm generous to you and you're generous back, if I smile at you, you smile back. This is the nature of reciprocity, reciprocal. If what I give, I get back. This can easily come into our Christian faith life and destroy our faith at the very foundation because we think that if I live a, if we live a perfect life, um, therefore God will allow me to be blessed. The nature of sowing and reaping. It's, it sounds very simple. It's a lovely principle. It's, a, it's something we do with our children. When we raise our children, we say, you be nice to your friends, they'll be nice back. And that's true, isn't it? That's how it happens. But we can't build a Christian faith upon this because it's overly simplistic. Even for the Buddhist faith, where they talk about karma, sowing and reaping, reaping and sowing, uh, they have an out clause. You see, if you give away a lot and you don't get back a lot, if you're generous or if you're kind and it doesn't come back to you, you're simply told that you must have been bad in a former life. So therefore, this is why this transaction doesn't work. Can you see the out there and In Buddhism, you know, you try this karma thing, try this reciprocity thing, but if it doesn't work, you just say, oh, you must have been bad in a former life and you've been punished for that. Well, the Bible doesn't speak of any of this at all. It doesn't speak about fairness as being part of our Christian life. What we are told, though, and this is Newton's law, it says that for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. This Newton's law doesn't apply to Christian faith. Why? Because we live in a world where the system is broken. And when we live in a fallen world, we have to ask ourselves the question, then where do we go when life is unfair? How many of you have seen situations where life is unfair? What you have to do is look at the refugee camps, these little kids being raised in terrible environments. But look, I know for myself, as as a man, I was... um, I was raised the eldest of my family, and my parents were both the eldest in their families. So there was um, because of this gift of early breeding that we had. Um, there's just over 20 years between each generation. I was born. I had nine grandparents, okay, great grandparents who lived well into their 90s, and uh, it was it was a real privileged life for me to have because I had all these people around me loving on me. It wasn't to the age of 40 when I had this first real personal sense of tragedy and loss and, and something was unfair, and that was when um, I was sitting at church one Sunday morning and a policeman turned up to tell the Harris family that their father Peter had been killed in a helicopter accident that morning. And Peter had been one of our worship leaders, and uh, he's just the nicest guy, honestly. If anybody remembers, I see some nods here. He was just the sweetest guy. He'd do anything for everybody, never had a bad word. And, uh, and, and he had four kids all around teenage age, and I was going, this ain't fair. This is just terrible. And, and uh, I can remember when I turned up here, um, the secretary of the church at the time was Rob Perkis. And I see Linda's widow, over there. Hey, Linda. And Rob, a few years before I turned up here, 23, 4 years ago, he um, he contracted Parkinson's disease, and he was this guy full of faith, full of energy. Uh, he used to be just this, um, you know, like a, a blue bluebottle fly in a jar, you know. Okay, this sort of guy he was, and he had Parkinson's, and and, and he would come in and out of uh, the medication that he was on, and he'd shake and he'd stammer, and 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 uh, I remember being in some meetings with him at other with other churches and. It was quite funny because some of the people there jumped on him and said, Rob, he's got demons, look at him. You know, So we had to sort of pray for him and deliver him. <laughs> and, um, you know, Rob was such a good-hearted guy. But it was unfair. Unfair. And more recently, a um, good friend of mine, good friend of the church, Lyndon McDougall died. Uh, he went on a plane, got a blood clot, caused uh, deep vein thrombosis, the clot went to his head, and he died. And I was in hospital with his family at the time that they took him off life support. And I'm like, this isn't fair. This guy's you know, super kingdom-minded. You know? And uh, as many of you know, my own daughter, who was up here a moment ago, she lost her husband three and a half years ago when her husband contracted leukemia, and after a year, he died at the age of 25. And I look at him and I thought, he is just a saint. Well, my daughter assures me he wasn't, but from my perspective, he was. He worked for a Christian mission agency from the time that he had left school. Uh, he, he served the church as a worship leader, did missions, worked with the youth group, did everything right as far as somebody who deserved to be alive and kicking you know, and then I read about some triple homicidal maniac who's still alive in jail at the age of 90, and you go, well, that's not fair, you know? And so we find ourselves in these stories, and we look at it and we think, if it's about fairness, and fairness doesn't work, and if my faith is all built on fairness, um, it's going to crumble pretty quickly, because fairness is not what your faith is built upon. But what I want to do is show you a, um, a psalm, the first few verses of a psalm, Psalm 77. And I want you to come to grips with how it is that this person who's writing this psalm is dealing with their emotions of grief. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart My heart meditated and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion. And I read this, and I think, this is a song. This isn't the sort of song we sing on a Sunday, though, is it? You know? Be handing out antidepressants at the end of the service, you know? How sad are you today? I remember an interview taken between Bill Hybels, the leader of a large church in the States, and uh, Bono, the lead singer from the band U2, and Bono was talking about his Christian faith. And uh, one of the criticisms that he pitched against the church was that the church, in its singing and its songs, didn't have enough angst or tension or pain or loss. And uh, and he said that was a criticism of the church because the church only dealt with one part of life. It was sort of like the resurrection part of the faith rather than the crucifixion and the suffering side of our faith. Does that make sense? And so... Um, so Heibel's interviewed Bono upon this basis and he, you know, he just made this, this statement and it really caught my attention. And then it got me thinking in the context of the series about lament. I thought, you know, there are, there are modern psalms out there on the airways, aren't there? Songs that talk about grief, songs that talk about sadness. And uh, the song that this team's coming out to play now, this song is about an event that happened in 1972 called Bloody Sunday. Bloody Sunday because the streets ran red with blood in the township of Londonderry in Ireland. Catholics had been marching down the road in protest about something that was unfair. This is a time of a a period of 15 years called the Troubles in Ireland. Thankfully, it's largely in the past. But what happened is the protesters were confronted by British paramilitary, and some of the young men got a bit upset and started throwing rocks at the military, and they lost the plot, and they opened fire on the protesters. They wounded 14, and they killed 13 men. And this is known as Bloody Sunday. It's commemorated every every year. And so U2, the band, decided that they needed to remember this in the form of a psalm, a song. And if Bloody Sunday had happened, say, two and a half thousand years ago, three thousand years ago from today, the song that you're going to hear now could well be in our Bible. Because it's a song that reflected the pain and the angst and the anguish and the injustice and the unfairness of the day. So I'm going to let these guys play the song for you. I bet you didn't know that that final verse of that song, which you've probably sung a hundred times yourself, ended up with talking about the victory that Jesus has won. See, the song is a cry of hopelessness and a cry and a lament about uh, the loss that's been created. But in there is a challenge It says, um, we won't have our backs put against the wall. In other words, we're not going to be pushed back into a place where we will respond with violence in the same way. And, uh, and now we have to apply the victory that Jesus has won. That's that final balm, that final healing that's being described there by the Christian band You Too. And so what we find here in this song is a, is a lament. It's a, it's a cry for help. It's a cry of despair. It's saying that uh, life isn't fair. It's saying that there's been loss, and we can't reconcile that loss. But above all things, we're not going to put ourselves in a place where we fight violence with violence. And that's such an important thing. You know, for us as, as Christians, um, when we talk about Sunday, Bloody Sunday, we also have to talk about our own Bloody Sundays. Not, you know, I'm not trying to use bad words here. I'm talking about the times when it seems like our blood runs out you know, when we're suffering loss. And, and the, the psalmist talks to us about um, this, this bigger picture, this bigger picture that comes into our imagination when we're going through, through loss. You see, there seems to be two worlds when we're going through grief. There's the subjective world of you in that moment, of feeling the pain and feeling the loss, feeling that absolute tragedy of brokenness that only grief can bring about. And I know over the years when I've taken funerals here, um, I have these words going through the back of my mind from one of my lecturers from college who was talking to us about, you know, when we take a funeral, he says you've got to be careful about inappropriate grief. You know, you, if you're leading the funeral you can't be up there howling your eyes out, you know, you've got to sort of keep composed. And Well, that's easier said than done, isn't it? I, I can remember when Peter's funeral came and, you know, the guy died in the helicopter. And uh, we played the PowerPoint through a couple of hours before uh, the funeral and uh, just got all these pictures of the guy being my friend and my neighbour and his family and his kids. And I just, I just broke down, I just howled and I didn't have any idea how I was going to do to the funeral. But by God's grace, you know, you get through it. I remember other times when we've taken um, taken a casket out through here. I go out that way, have a good old howl around the back, and then wander around this way, all composed again, ready to sort of uh, say last goodbyes at the hearse. But you've got this subjective thing going on where you're feeling all this pain. And at the same time, you've got this sense in which at a distance you can understand what is going through your life. It's like you have the ability to stand apart from yourself at certain moments in this grief cycle. And, and you, 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 all of a sudden, you're crying and weeping and lamenting and crying out to God for help. And then five minutes later, you're standing back and you're going, what overcame me? How did that happen? And grief is like this. It's this ability that God has seemed to have given us to be in the moment, but also to stand back from the moment. The challenge is to get those in equal parts, I think. Traditional British stiff upper lip stuff is um, stand apart, don't enter in, because it's not, not masculine enough, particularly for us guys. But the Bible tells us in very, very real terms that expressing our grief is a normal human experience. And when Jesus said you will have life and you'll have it abundantly, he wasn't just talking about your bank account. He was talking about the full understanding of what it means to be human. And we will experience deep, deep despair in our lives. That's, That's normal because if you love deeply, you will grieve deeply. We all want to love deeply. So therefore, the price of loving is the price of being hurt. Let's have a look at what the psalmist says. We've seen this piece before, I just read it to you. Let's go from the middle of the third to last line. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion. And this is where the psalm seems to finish. Nine verses. But he is right here in this subjective place of arguing with God and and sort of pleading with God, saying, this just doesn't seem right. Has God disappeared? Is he no longer merciful? And then the writer takes a step back and he becomes a little bit more objective and he stands away from his grief. And this is what he says. Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people. The descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God, the waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water, the heavens resounded with thunder, your arrows flashed back and forth, your thunder was heard in the whirlwind, your lightning lit up the world, the earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Notice how the writer here has taken a step back from the immediacy of his pain, and he's saying, listen, I've got to stop here, I've got to, I've got to take a bigger picture, I've got to breathe in deep and remember the bigger story of what God has been like in my life and throughout history. And there the, the writer starts to feel some sort of comfort. And, and this is the big thing for today, you've got to remember that faith is beyond fairness. Faith isn't about fairness. Faith is about faith in God, not faith in a formula. And fairness is a formula, isn't it? If I do this, you'll do that. That's fair. If I work for you for 40 hours a week, I'll get a decent week's wage. That's fair. But we live in a world that is broken, and Jesus didn't come to fix it in the way of allocating fairness. Remember what he said? The poor will always be with you. That's not fair. That's anything but fair. At the same time, we administer justice and healing and redemption and salvation in lots of different ways because we are Christians, we help others out. But faith is beyond fairness. There was a time in Jesus' life where he was on the shores of Lake Galilee and he was starting to tell the people about how it is that he was going to come to a point in his life where they were going to eat from his body and drink from his blood. Now, we all know that he was referring to communion, you know, the, the body and blood of Christ. But for the first time here, they were going, oh, this is getting pretty freaky. This guy wants us to eat his body and drink his blood. This is not good. And the scriptures tell us that a whole lot of people, his disciples... Not the 12, but his disciples left. They said his teaching is way too hard for us. Which is a nice way of saying we don't understand this and we think the guy's lost the plot. And then Jesus turned to his 12 disciples and he said, and are you going to leave me too? But Peter who was always first with the answer. simply looked at Jesus and said, but who else would we follow? You, Lord, have the words of life. You see, when we're in this subjectivity of pain and grief, we are really wrestling with the sovereignty of God at those times, aren't we? God, how come I feel so bad? How come this loss, which just seems so unfair, is happening to me? And it's in those moments when God turns to us Are you going to leave me here now? Are you going to abandon your faith? Well, yes, if it's about if your faith is built on fairness, abandon it because it was never going to survive anyway. But faith is not built upon fairness, it's built upon Christ. And for us, when we go through these difficult times, we stop and we start to reevaluate. A little bit like Peter the Disciple did at the time when he's saying, Man, I don't get this stuff, I don't understand it but the history that I've had with you tells me that you have the words of life. Jesus, I'm thinking about the times when you calmed the water, healed the sick, turned the water into wine, a whole lot of other good things you've said and done. Uh, I don't understand this right now. How do we get to eat your body and drink your blood? That's weird. But what I do know is that we've got a pretty good history here going on. And now I'm confused, but that doesn't wipe out what impressed me. because faith is not built upon fairness and at some level not even understanding. I I still, with my family, say, God, why did you take my son-in-law home? He was only 25. He was a great kid, great husband. I'll never reconcile that. But I look back and I see the goodness of God. I look forward and I see the, the future to come. And then I start to change my perspective. And my perspective... Is, is along these lines, because eternity is far greater place. Heaven is a far greater place than what we have now going on, isn't it? And so I think to myself, if I was to get on the phone and talk to any of these friends of mine who have passed away and said, hey, dude, do you want to come back? They'd go, heck no. Rain's too much in Tauranga. When we talk about people going to a better place, that isn't just a platitude. That isn't just something nice to say to people when they're feeling bad. That is a genuine reality. And my reality tells me that Jesus Christ came to die for my sins. He didn't come to fix me and make me perfect. That's a work in progress. Hey, you guys who are baptized today, it's all a work in progress. Hey? You know that. okay? You probably had a bad thought since you got out of baptistry already. When is this guy going to shut up so I can eat my lunch? See, you sinned already. Yeah, look at them, all nodding. See? See, these events don't make you perfect, but we're being perfected. Christ died on the cross to call us to a better life and a greater life, and not to fix it by creating fairness in our world, but to say we can overcome the pain, we can overcome the loss, and because he himself suffered and died, he identifies with our pain and our loss. And eternity is a greater promise. It's not sitting around waiting until you die to live life, but it's getting on, living with that hope that that we have about eternal life and the, and the fact that Christ said he'll never forsake us and he'll never leave us. So even in that moment when I'm just a bundle of tears and snot, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. The God who says he'll never leave me or forsake me is right there with me, and I get... Saved by the fact that I can take an objective look at my own reality at times, and like the psalmist go, it's Sunday, bloody Sunday right now. But Jesus is coming into my life, into this event, into this happening, and he said he'll never forsake me, and he'll never leave me. Why don't we stand for prayer? Father, we come before you today knowing that our reality is far greater than our Facebook presentation. That the pain and loss that we experience in times of trouble are emotions that we often don't know how to process. Somehow, our society hasn't given us room to process these legitimately, and yet your word says, come to me all year Burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. And that means for us, Lord, we have the opportunity to come to you in our grief and be welcomed, not by a fierce God with lightning bolts in his hands, but the image of Jesus captures us as the good shepherd who embraces us. And so, God, I just want to pray for folks today who, who feel that somehow along the way they've bound themselves up in knots, emotional knots because they haven't given themselves permission to be fully human, to have life in all its abundance including the grief and so we pray Lord that in these weeks ahead as we look at this subject we can look at it and see ourselves in the mirror of scripture and how it is that our soul is reflected by your word legitimizing our experience, making it normal. And so, Lord, we we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for Jesus who came and went with us. And we thank you for the ability we have as Christians to live that abundant life, the full expression of all the things that we created to experience. Lord, we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name.
0: Amen.